Thanks, Alan. I'm very grateful for the honor you're bestowing on me this evening, and especially for my designation as a Robert A. Dahl Fellow. I had the privilege of being a student in one of Professor Dahl's seminars 33 years ago, and it was an inspiring experience. His commitment to rigorous social scientific analysis of big questions about democracy impressed me then, and it impresses me even more now that I've learned by trial and error how difficult such analysis can be. As Alan mentioned, my most recent book, Unequal Democracy, focuses on the political causes and consequences of economic inequality in contemporary America. And the first sentence quotes the first sentence of Dahl's classic book, Who Governs, which was published 50 years ago. In a political system where nearly every adult may vote, but where knowledge, wealth, social position, access to officials, and other resources are unequally distributed, who actually governs? In reflecting on how my own scholarly work has mattered or might matter in the world beyond academia, I think it might be instructive to trace the fate of two of the empirical claims presented in unequal democracy. The first is the one that Alan mentioned. Through a simple tabulation of patterns of income growth under Democratic and Republican presidents over the past 60 years, I showed that middle and low-income Americans have fared much better economically under Democratic presidents than they have under Republicans. On average, middle-class families have experienced twice as much real income growth under Democrats, and working poor families have experienced six times as much real income growth under Democratic presidents as they have under Republican presidents. This finding, appearing six months before the 2008 presidential election, attracted a good deal of attention. On the campaign trail, Barack Obama cited what he called a book that's come out right now by a prominent economist, <laughs> irrefutable, looking at the evidence showing that when Democrats have been in charge of the economy, the economy has grown faster, and it's also been fairer in the sense that everybody benefits. Many other people with similar partisan inclinations toward the touted the finding, from Danny Roderick and Alan Blinder to James Carville and Bill Clinton. Meanwhile, Republicans mostly ignored it or dismissed it as a coincidence, while displaying very little interest in the chapter full of statistical analyses, buttressing the causal argument. Another chapter of unequal democracy was devoted directly to addressing Dahl's big question, who actually governs? Building on decades of statistical research on political representation, it related the roll call votes cast by U.S. senators to the political views of their constituents. However, rather than simply assuming that every constituent's opinion gets equal weight, I examined the differential responsiveness of senators to the views of affluent, middle-class, and poor constituents. The results suggested that the views of affluent constituents are fairly influential, especially for Republican senators. The views of middle-class constituents matter rather less, while the views of constituents in the bottom third of the income distribution have no apparent effect on their senators' roll call votes. Parallel work by my Princeton colleague Marty Gillens, employing a very different research design, produced similar results. If these findings are correct, they seem to me to represent a gigantic embarrassment for American democracy. As Dahl put it in another classic book, a key characteristic of a democracy is the continued responsiveness of the government to the preferences of its citizens considered as political equals. So where were the New York Times and CNN this time? By my admittedly impressionistic estimate, the analysis of unequal responsiveness 
got about one-hundredth as much attention as the analysis of partisan patterns in income growth. Leaving aside the possibility that nobody actually reads the last 50 pages of a 300-page book, I can think of three possible and mutually reinforcing explanations for this disparate attention. First, neither political party has anything to gain from calling attention to evidence of shameful unresponsiveness to the preferences of low-income Americans. Indeed, my analysis suggests that both Republican and Democratic senators were utterly unresponsive to the views of low-income constituents. Poor people themselves might have something to gain from calling attention to that evidence, but they are not heavily represented among journalists and political commentators. Second, while a putative prominent economist may be a respectable source for claims about patterns of income growth, political scientists writing about political topics are much less newsworthy. Journalists generally assume they know everything political scientists know, and then some. In many cases, they're probably right, but when they're wrong, they're unlikely to recognize that fact. (laughs) Finally, the practical world of journalists and policymakers is generally much more interested in this week's campaign controversy or legislative maneuver than in broad, enduring patterns of politics and policymaking, and much more interested in conclusions than in the evidence supporting those conclusions. Perhaps it is naive to wish that serious people paid more serious attention to big, enduring questions about the workings of American democracy. Perhaps it is equally naive to wish that academics spent less time spinning toy theories and more time adducing the basic facts we need to shed light on the workings of American democracy. In both respects, I am unrepentantly naive. Thank you.